So Liz, did you hear about these five zebras on the loose in Maryland? No. <laughs> Get out of here. Where are they? They escaped from someone's personal sanctuary. And there are pictures of these guys all over like the Washington Post, just in people's backyards. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like you you open up the window, you're like, oh, morning. <laughs> a pure Gint suite is yes. playing in your mind. You look out and it's like, the Lion King. <laughs> I think that would be miraculous. I would think I was still dreaming. You do that thing in like cartoons where your <laughs> eyes bug up really wide and then you rub them and you're like, nope, yes, you rub them not awake yet. And then you open them, and you're like, it's still there. <laughs> oh my goodness. I have so many questions. Like, right? Okay. First of all, who just has some zebras in their house, in their sanctuary. Like, who has the plot of land for the zebras? Where are where are these? Is this, like, in the D.C. area of Maryland? In the suburbs. Like, who has the land to have their own zebras? How did the zebras get here? Yes. Well, I kind of know that from watching. This feels like an age and a half ago, but the Tiger King movement at the beginning of... Oh, Tiger King, Yes. What are they going to do? Are they trying to find them? Like, how do you get them back? So many questions. They're trying to corral them with vehicles and by putting out the special kind of food that they like and trying to lure them. I don't know what the success rate has been. but I guess you can't rein them. Can you rein them like horses? Like lasso? Yeah, them? you know, <laughs> like the bucking broncos, like run in those circles and then you swing the, you swing the lasso and you hook them on. Like, can't, like, can't they do that? Like the Lone Ranger? Yes. Cowboys? Like, that's what we need. You know, that's the problem. We don't have any cowboys over here. Mm. We need to get some mm. cowboys from like Oklahoma and come over yeah. and wrangle them. <laughs> Zebra wrangling. Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists exploring the art of connection through conversations with each other and our friends. I'm Stephanie Knutson. And I'm Liz O'Hara Starr. And we're both professional freelance musicians living in the DC metro area. gosh we had like a pretty epic summer yeah oh what'd you guys think of the new theme our friend jp wogeman is a composer 
And he wrote that for us. And he produced it mm -hmm. with all the backing, extra fancy instruments and beats and stuff. And I don't know about you, Liz, but I really enjoyed how that came out. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. It is so cool. And so we have viola on our intro music now. You're welcome. <laughs> to all those who were dying for it. Yeah. Let us know what you think. We haven't had a conversation about our lives on the podcast in months. This return to the regular scheduled programming has seemed like a switch. Yeah. I was just talking with some of my mom friends and we're like, okay, after 18 months of nothing, having a very relaxed existence, it seems like with this school year, everything has just picked up all at once. And yep. we're like right back in it. My kids have after school activities. I'm having rehearsals. We're here, we're there, we're trying to make PTA things work, we're, you know, trying to go out with our friends now, because that's added in. And that's, I'm not yeah. sad about that. But it just really seems like it's been a really big adjustment, because we've been out of it for so long. And everything is just coming back as if the last 18 months didn't happen. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But also add to that that my daughter's in quarantine right now, because, <laughs> because of possible exposure at school. Oh my God. It's so frustrating. It's frustrating and it's worrying for her health and yep. her friend's health. But it's also like I'm grieving for my loss of freedom. Very understandably. I had a taste of it, you know, for the past 18 months. It's been everyone together all the time. And then they went back to school for like two weeks and everything was great. And I was like, oh, yes, I'm me. I'm feeling my own energy and I can do what I need to do during the day. I love my kids more than anyone can possibly imagine unless you're another mother. But it was nice to have my own space, my own time. And it's different when they're here. Not that they're super demanding. It's just different. Of course. And I had to taste that and now it was like ripped away. And I'm just trying to figure out who to be angry at. <laughs> I think we do that as humans. Like we try and figure out who's to blame, where we can put our anger. Yes. Yes. Because somehow it feels better. Not to bring it completely back to playing viola, but I decided that I was going to change my setup. So I went through a process and actually I visited Lynn Denning and Gary Frisch. Lynn Denning does setup. So she measured me for a new chin rest and she actually gave me a lesson while she was fitting me, kind of diagnosing what my possible body issues are, my alignment issues, how to properly play without a shoulder rest, which is the transition that I was trying to make. I decided I wanted to make this transition in order to help my sound because I've always had kind of a hang up about the way that I sounded, the way my instrument sounded. So I wanted to hear what it sounded like without. So I was just messing around and I found out that it sounded a lot better without the type of shoulder rest that I was using. So I went to Lynn and she measured me for a custom chin rest, which I have a very long neck and she was able to get something that more fit me. She measured me for that. And then I took the measurements to Gary Frisch and he made it for me. He actually crafted it and put it on my instrument. So I've been transitioning that way. You may have seen, I put out a video on my Instagram about what different shoulder rests sound like on my instrument. So that was a really neat experiment to run to. 
But anyway, this process with Lynn was amazing. There's nothing like having something made bespoke for you. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. As you know, about three years ago, I went through this exact same process. And I have a Frisch and Denig chin rest that was custom made for myself as well. And actually, it's so interesting. I think there are a lot of reasons why someone might want to take this journey And mine didn't start with sound quality, although, of course, this has been an unexpected bonus of the process. Mine was injury related. Mm. I was playing with a setup and with the type of tension that was just not going to be sustainable. I was recovering from a pretty bad shoulder injury that was playing related. So I first met with Claire Stefani, who Mm -hmm. we both have interacted with, and she fitted me the same way we did actually a little body mapping session and I ended up with a Frisch and Denning chin rest but I didn't have the time pre-pandemic to readjust the setup I had the new chin rest but I was still using the old shoulder rest because it it requires as you know because you've been going through this process Steph recently that it requires a bit of reorganization of the way that you use your muscles to play and the way you support the instrument. And so I took the further step last summer and changed up my shoulder rest setup. So it's sort of the complete package of what Claire had envisioned for me all those years ago. And I can't imagine going back. I I know that that can be a very challenging experience. And I love that you went on that journey too. It's it's really cool. So anyway, I guess we're giving a shout out to Frisch and Denig if anybody's interested. Yeah. So in fact, I took a little bit of video and Lynn took some pictures and she sent those back to me. And they were so informative to have someone just kind of diagnose you from a very objective point of view. Mm -hmm. And I'll see if I can put together a little video and a maybe a slide of some of the pictures that she took and my process and stuff. And I'll post that on our Instagram along with their information. So if anyone's interested in going along that same journey, you can do it too. Yeah. And I would recommend if you're not in our area, Claire does them virtually. So she's very good at that. And there are other body mapping specialists who are really good at assessing these types of things. They can take a look at you from every angle and sort of figure out where you're holding tension, even in places you might not realize. I I think a body mapping consult is helpful for anyone. If you're interested in this, you can always find somebody in your area just by looking that up. And it's kind of a cool journey to take. It's an exploration too in, I think, re-examining some of the quote unquote standards of posture and playing that maybe we were brought up with that don't really serve our bodies to their most natural movement. And If there's anything I've learned over the last year or so with this time, it's that freedom of movement while you play is probably the most important thing for your sound quality Mm. and even for your facility. I think one of the other things I would say if anybody's interested in playing around with it is just take it one step at a time, you know, make one little change. Sometimes it can feel a little overwhelming. (laughs) I'm here to testify to that. (laughs) Yeah, be gentle with yourself. I mean, you've been playing this way for 30 years or however long you've been doing it. And to have the expectation that you're going to change it in a week even is not realistic. And I would just say, give yourself grace, be gentle with yourself and be an observer. Yeah, exactly. Observing. Oh, man, this Mm -hmm. is so funny. It's so funny when things tie into the things that you're thinking about. Mm. I've been thinking a lot about that idea of being observant of your own behaviors, of your own practices, of your Mm -hmm. own... This extends well beyond music. To be able to observe without judgment, too, I think is a very specific skill to 
cultivate. Yes. You know, just observe yourself as if from afar, or you don't have any stake in whatever the outcome is. Just like, oh, I noticed that my bow wasn't straight there. Okay. Just by observing things, sometimes you can change them. I tell that to my students too. Yep. I think it yields more results than judgment. <laughs> oh, yes. In all of your life, not totally. just music. <laughs> Stephanie knows. I drove my mom across the country at the end of August. My parents are making a huge move from Virginia Beach to Tucson, Arizona, which is very full circle. My mom is from Tucson and my dad went to school in the program that he is now teaching at at the University of Arizona, which is pretty cool. But we drove from Arlington to Charlotte, where my sister lives. And then we drove through Tennessee and Arkansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico into Arizona. And we stayed along the way and stopped and saw a couple of places. And we did a long stop in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is just absolutely beautiful and cool. And I hope I can go back and like really spend more than about 14 hours there because it was just awesome. But one of the things that I keep thinking about is that drive, every state we passed through, I swear the landscape changed ever so slightly the sky got a little bigger the further west we went. And I was just constantly in my hours of driving confronted with these moments of wow about this earth, like this planet that we live on. And it's just so phenomenal. It was just such a moving experience. Someone said to me the other day, a good friend of mine talked about travel and how it's really important to try to take time to travel because we live in our own stories day to day, every day is this story. And we associate ourself with that story of our home, the place we live, our families, our work, you know, whatever it is. And actually, the more you have the chance to like get away from it, it's very refreshing because you realize that who you are is not the story that you're living in. And it just kind of feels like a refresh, like a reset button is what it felt like. I wanted to just give a shout out to like, where we live, this country, which I don't know, you drive through Oklahoma and it's all the different indigenous nations. I hesitate to even call it America because I'm like, no, it's just this beautiful land that we call home. We yeah. named it America, but it's actually just this beautiful planet we live on. And I, it felt good to just take time to appreciate that and to really look around <laughs> at the amazing things that you see every day probably the highlight of my summer, although there were a lot of great things. We had a great time with American Pops in August. Mm. We had such a blast doing some work with them and hanging out together. And we got to see Brandy Carlisle, mm -hmm. which was phenomenal. We've indoctrinated you into the cult of Brandy. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So incredible. And then with Viola Centric, we had such a great time doing a strategic planning retreat together, mm -hmm. which I know feels like a lifetime ago, right? It does. <laughs> it feels like so long ago. That's so crazy. We've been dreaming up and conjuring up all sorts of really cool plans and ideas for where we go forward, which is super exciting for what we're going to do in season two. It's just very cool. Yeah. So welcome to season two. Yeah. And this is a great one to start off with. Our guest, as you know from reading the title, is Drew Ford, that viola kid. And it was wonderful to talk with him. He is not necessarily from our generation of players, but oh my gosh, if the future looks like this guy, 
and all of the wonderful insights that he has to offer, then I think we are in a good place. He had so much to say about building a brand, which is something that people of our generation never really had to worry about because there was no social media, there was no really self-promotion in that way. So that was a really aha moment for me. And I think maybe for some of our listeners going forward, that you might want to consider incorporating. Absolutely. I loved talking with Drew too. As Stephanie mentioned, we're coming from a little bit different perspective than Drew, just in terms of the generation of years that we graduated from school and what our career paths have looked like. And so I would suspect, Stephanie, that much like myself, a lot of listeners hear the phrase, build your brand, and they cringe. Mm. Because I think that when you hear it on the outset, your instinct is to be like, what do you mean build my brain? I think there's a connotation with that that feels uncomfortable, you know, mm. that feels maybe somehow like it's not real or authentic. But here's the truth. This was a very important thing that Drew said was that building your brand, actually the only way to do so is to lean into your own authenticity and expand on the things that make you as authentic as you are as a person. And if you think about building a brand to just be what we've been talking about now on this podcast for the better part of a year, just leaning into who you are as an individual, as a person, and what you as an individual have to offer the world, I could build a brand thinking in that way. That's a great point because I think a lot of people think building a brand is like differentiating yourself on purpose like artificially, mm -hmm. but it's not. Yeah. You're absolutely right. In so many aspects of life, we learn something that is healthy or unhealthy, we reframe it. If you think about building a brand as leaning into this authenticity piece of who you are, that's a positive reframe. And that's something I think anybody could get behind. And it also gives you a sense of, as we've talked about before, autonomy over the way your life goes. You have autonomy over your career, over who you are as a person. I love that. And Drew is 100% authentic. Yes. And just another point that occurred to me is that when we were coming up through music school and the early parts of our lives, I think that a lot of the emphasis was on being a team player, being a section player, getting into an organization like an orchestra, where it doesn't come as naturally to us to think of ourselves as individuals and our own individual business and brand. And Drew's generation I think they were kind of waking up to the idea that you need to have your own identity mm -hmm. and develop that and cultivate it and not to put it on like something artificial, but you need that as part of your own business in the world because you may not be playing with an orchestra. You may be teaching. You may be doing any other of these various little paths that you can take as a musician. And that's a really big distinction. Our generation since we didn't come up in that, maybe we need just a little gentle awakening to the way that the world is these days. Yeah, absolutely. I love this whole train of thought that we're on here. It doesn't matter at what point you're at in your career, you can start to cultivate this brand for yourself just by leaning into what makes you happy, where you want to go with your life, the kind of things that really light you up. It's just very cool. Yeah, I can't think of a better way for us to start our season. We're taking this in a direction where we really want everyone to feel like they have a safe space to have difficult conversations. So thank you guys for joining us for the beginning of this season. Yeah, so enjoy our conversation with Drew. I think you're going to love it.
Our guest today is Drew Alexander Ford. He's known worldwide as that viola kid or TVK, a unique and thoughtful voice in the viola world. Drew has blazed his own trail as a musician. So Drew's exploits include freelancing. He records his own original work. He's a sought after public speaker. He collabs on other people's work. He is a teacher. He has a YouTube channel. He has a podcast called Faking Notes with his friend Trevor Baumgartner. So welcome, Renaissance man, that viola kid, Drew Thank Ford. <laughs> We're so pleased to have you on our humble little podcast. Thanks for having me. And if this has viola in the title, I'm like, yes, let's get involved. <laughs> like, I'm about it. Yay. Oh, that's so great. I have to say my personal connection to you is six degrees of separation kind of thing through my students. Wow, really? So I've been teaching in the D.C. area for about 12 years, and I remember several times my students having these conversations with each other and referencing your videos. Really? Yes. Wow. You really have a way of connecting with these young musicians who are coming up through this process. And yeah, I've heard of that viola kid for a long time. So it's very cool to like actually get to talk with you. And I just think what you've been able to do in particular for young people and giving them that access, getting your message out there, it's really inspiring to see. So that's one of the things we were really excited to talk to you about. I appreciate that so much. Like, I don't really get a lot of feedback. It's mostly like you're yelling into a dark hallway. Hello! (laughs) (laughs) We're familiar. We're podcasters. (laughs) Exactly. It's literally like that, right? And then six years later, you're like, I watched that episode. I'm like, no, you didn't. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that, you know? Oh, yeah. They're going to listen to this. They're going to be like, oh, my God, you talked to that viola kid. That's crazy. So you have fans. Even if they were not giving wow. you comments, you've got fans. That's, <laughs> I'm very humbled. All I ever wanted to do is just make the world a little bit better. You know, this is a theme of being a violist, right? We don't really get to, like, have any attention ever. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. How does a violist have a voice? when your whole existence is to support the voice of somebody else's. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. So how did you, as a violist, decide, I'm going to put myself out there, especially on social media, which could be a very scary endeavor. Anybody could see that. Well, it's so funny. When I did it, I was more inspired by YouTubers at the time when I began Instagram. And... I loved how connected I could feel to a random YouTuber just talked about their life. And I was like, Mm man, I'm tired of people thinking I play violin. So maybe that's, (laughs) that's my job to change that. Mm -hmm. And so I began just sharing my life. I use Instagram as like a live open journal and I wanted to be a person who could make money doing the thing that they loved. And mm-hmm. I think that I made the the deduction that if nobody knew who I was, how would they ever hire me? If they didn't know the quality of my work, how would they ever know what to pay me? You know, and that's something that we could get into is just like this music world is so nebulous when you start getting into the professional realm and 
there's something that I've been wanting to say publicly, but I just haven't found the right words. But if we get degrees, we need to stop accepting low fees Mm -hmm. because high schoolers need gigs too. College kids need gigs too. And for us to be saying it's okay to do a wedding for 50, a hundred bucks, 150 bucks as people with bachelor's and master's degrees and then decades of experience is doing not only ourselves a disservice, but is doing the whole market of string playing and, and music a disservice by just lowering the baseline fee. So I've been thinking as like a 22 year old with no job experience and just being able to take any job and just being like, woo, to almost 30 and just like, wow, okay, if I want to start a family, I can't play enough $150 gigs anymore. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's not yep. enough time or energy for that. No. Yep. Mm-hmm. You start to weigh your time versus the paycheck and like, what are you getting from that for what you're expending? What are you trading for that dollar? You know, DC traffic, just like LA traffic is no joke. <laughs> and you're going to spend an hour, hour and a half in your car to get to that gig. You're going to be sitting at that gig for two and a half hours and you got to spend another hour on the way home. You've just spent, you know, five hours for a two and a half hour paycheck. So trying to decide what should I say yes to and what should I not? I agree with you, Stephanie. Like that's so huge. Your value understanding it's not even just the time but it's the wear and tear on your car it's the cost of gas it's your sanity it's the opportunity cost what could you be doing instead right i was talking to kev marcus of black violin and just by the nature of the fact that they've built a brand and they connect to audiences in a certain way their hourly rate it's worth more and the difference between me and them is just the fact that they're not willing. They just will not answer the phone. And Kev was like, you know, you could play a thousand weddings for a hundred dollars, or you could play one wedding for $10,000. Which would you rather do at this point? Which are you more capable of doing? And that kind of fused with a piece of information I learned from a, a YouTuber named Roberto Blake. And he said, the more you do a job, the less you are compensated for your time and the more you are compensated often exponentially for your efficiency. And that kind of blew my mind is like, I don't think we as musicians realize we should be charging also for our efficiency to do the job. Yeah. Weddings are like your sight reading. Oh, yeah. You didn't have to prepare for that. And I make it sound good. (laughs) (laughs) Right? People are paying for your efficiency. You just completely put that in black and white. Yeah, absolutely. I want to break this down even more because actually it took me back to my days of early 20s hustle. And Stephanie and I, Drew, are primarily orchestral musicians. What's interesting to me is even thinking about the level of efficiency of the way you present yourself on a job. Like, the way you arrange your chair when you're sitting with a stand partner, the note making that you do in music that's not in somebody's way. These are skills that you learn over time and you get better and better at. It becomes just second nature starting from school level. You're going to play any job. You're hungry. Literally. (laughs) You're hungry not only for paychecks, but you're hungry for experience. And 
the older we get, the less that hunger for just every experience in music becomes. You get that experience. You're like, I've done weddings. I don't need to do another (laughs) one. (laughs) I really am kind of there too. This is something that Stephanie and I have talked about in getting ready to talk with you just because we haven't officially met you before. And you're a little younger than we are (laughs) by a few years. But oh my gosh, like the things that you have shared publicly on the podcast and your perspectives on our career as musicians feels in some ways so much more evolved than where we've been operating for the last decade of our lives. And I love that you're at this precipice. I read your blog entry in February as you're getting ready to turn 30. Congratulations. Thank you. End of the month. It's happening. End of the month? Yeah. Oh, so you're a Libra. I'm a Libra. Shout out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that it's really an interesting transition from 20s to 30s. Mm -hmm. And it feels so much more like you know who you are and you know what your value is Mm -hmm. already. And uh, that's really exciting and something that we have realized as freelancers at our age, the pandemic has been forcing a lot of us to do that work. And we're coming from just a different generation almost of putting ourselves out there. I think that's a big part of it. It's a different generation, Liz. So when I started Instagram, let me just give you some context. I went to the Robert McDuffie Center for Strings in Macon, Georgia at Mercer University. I was a sophomore in my undergraduate studies and being from Atlanta, Georgia, I got a ton of formative tutelage from members of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And through Facebook, I was seeing accounts from the orchestral members that they were in collective bargaining agreements that didn't go through, that turned into lockouts, that turned into strikes. Three years out of four. And so what I would do when I went back home over winter break is I would get together with some Atlanta Symphony Youth Orchestra alumni. My friend Alice Hong would do most of the coordination and we would come together and perform chamber music as a fundraiser for the Players Association so they could have dental insurance. They were losing health insurance. This is what I was seeing my career being, right? Working hard, spending realistically five six years trying to get into a top orchestra and then having at the drop of a hat i could lose my job amen Mm -hmm. so i was like this is not an option so i had to really have that come to jesus moment like a decade ago to figure out okay so what am i gonna do if it's not an orchestra which has been spoon fed to me as the only path so yep i've been on this for a little while that's why maybe the flavor of the way I speak about music is because I I just knew it wasn't it. Wow, that's a really introspective journey. Is your average kid being funneled through the conservatory program? Are they thinking like you? Are they thinking about alternatives? Or are kids still like, okay, I have to get an orchestral job and that's how I'm going to be successful? What's your experience talking to people? That's one of the cool things over the pandemic is that I've been able to speak to kids at MIT and Harvard, Juilliard. It's funny, the ones who aren't in conservatory are the ones that kind of get it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're the ones that are like, okay, maybe I need to do some other stuff. The kids I spoke to at Berkeley did have a more entrepreneurial 
perspective on what it is to be a musician. But I think that's kind of the culture. That's their flavor out there. Definitely. That's the flavor, right? And every institution has its own flavor. I think that it's hard to judge because I'm not a part of that generation. So I'm not at the lunchroom table with Mm -hmm. them. But when I was going through school, I was that hashtag kid, right? I was that weird social media. Why is he posting on social media? (laughs) So I was a little early Mm. to it. But now I think it's understood and established. And now you can tell there are people that want to be influencers, but they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to create original content or tell their story because the hardest part is being vulnerable. And it's just much easier to put up a veneer of perfection so I think that once people kind of grasp that authenticity is the only way to really gain any traction and build your brand in a way that's robust and will last throughout your career, we'll still see a lot of people, especially in conservatories, trying to hit that soloist route, trying to hit the orchestral route. Something you said just struck me so much for you to decide that trying to win an orchestra job was not an option that you knew what the time involvement would be and then what would the payoff be on the other end i will say i've always felt entrepreneurial about our work which is another thing i love about you that you call yourself an artist entrepreneur because that is essentially what every single one of us is whether we realize it or not but i think that even then in the back of my mind i had long believed it and probably until the last year or two that if I didn't win an orchestra job, my career was not valid somehow. And I think a lot of us hold on to that little belief in the back of our heads about what it means to win the job. Yeah, to come to that realization early on. It's great. And I want to be fair. I have not always been of like, the orchestra's not it for me. Like I auditioned for Seattle Symphony. I had slated an audition for Minnesota. I was busy doing other things, Mm -hmm. but I was scared. I was like, look, I... I got two months worth of rent in the bank and that's it. And the phone's not ringing. The freelance life is so scary. It's like you're driving with, you have one pinky on the steering wheel and then the other fingers are doing other stuff. Drinking my coffee, eating my protein bar. (laughs) Answering the emails, you know, telling Siri to set a timer. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So I did want that job. I did want a job because I realized another important aspect of being an adult and being responsible is investing your money. It's not just like Mm -hmm. making money. It's making your money like an army that you use to grow and build itself. And it's really hard to do that when all of your money goes to your living expenses and you don't save anything. So I was like, okay, if I just made more money, it'd be a lot easier to make better financial decisions. I know how to live below my means. But a place like Los Angeles, it's, whoa, poverty wages is like 30,000, mm-hmm. <laughs> 40,000 out here, yeah, you know? Totally. So talking about money, can I read you back to you? Sure. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I have some of your 29 things for your 29 years. And I just, I yeah. love this so much. The concept of money is hard to wrap your head around. Don't feel bad if you don't understand it yet. Money is a vibration. Money is abundant. The game is to figure out how to provide value to people in exchange for money. If you have the audacity to bet on yourself and figure it out, you can get your bag. Yeah, get that bag. 
It's so good. I would love for you to expand on that a little bit because this idea of money being a vibration is new to me, but I'm really trying to wrap my head around it and trust. I mean, trust is a big part of that. For sure. Yeah, what do you think about that? Hearing your words back several months later. So the pandemic really gave me the space to just, <sighs> nothing else is happening. Learn about money, learn about economics, learn about finance, and just go as deep down that rabbit hole so you can get it through your thick skull <laughs> that a lot of the negative biases you've developed about money are not your own. They were given to you, their learned behavior. There's a mm -hmm. book by an author, I think, Barbara Stanny. It's called Overcoming Under Earning. It's a really good book. It was by a woman who was saddled with a bunch of debt, a divorce, and she was a single mother. And because she was a woman, was told that she didn't have to worry about finances. Just let her man deal with it. Her man couldn't deal with it, then left her with the kids and all the debts. So she had to nut up or shut up, and she shares a lot. Another book that I'm currently listening to is by Stephanie Kelton. I think she was a economics professor at the University of Kansas, I believe, or, or Missouri. I can't remember which. And in this book, she talks about modern monetary theory. And this is so nerdy. <laughs> I love this. Yeah, me too. But it's called the deficit myth. Most people just have finances wrong. They have the idea of money wrong. Don't believe other people about money necessarily, especially if they don't have any. And I, that feels like a very closed-minded statement, but I really believe that there is a system that exists that you can learn about and that you can figure out a way to, in a non-exploitive way, because I don't believe in exploitation. I don't believe in colonialism or anything, but I think that there are ways to get access to capital. And those two books kind of work together in addition to, I've been watching a lot of economics videos. There's a really great YouTube channel called Economics Explained. And they kind of go through the history of economics for different countries and how they make money. How do they use their resources to trade? It's so nerdy, but it made me realize countries like Japan are some of the richest countries on the planet. But Japan has no natural resources. They can't even grow their own food. But what they did excel at is creating efficient systems, exporting their efficient systems to the rest of the world. They just literally found ways to create economic value. So if you're a freelancer, if you're a musician, you don't have to take anybody else's money. You can create your own money. All money is, is just a reflection of value that you're giving to a market. And if you learn about the Federal Reserve, there's a great book called The Creature from Jekyll Island, where they talk about the formation of the Federal Reserve. They just hit buttons on a computer screen and create money. Mm -hmm. it, there's not a limited supply. It's abundant. And so once you wrap your head around all those things, then you think about instead of feeling overwhelmed, just think about what's next. What do I do? Mm -hmm. What do I do? And then when you get there, you can start being creative and, and, and creating new avenues. But it takes a little bit of education. That's why they don't teach that in schools. <laughs> because you wouldn't want to work for anybody else if you learned how to work for yourself. Right. And here we come again to the root of all our problems, which is capitalism. You heard it here first. <laughs> it's, it's a problem. Unfettered capitalism is a problem. 
<laughs> Call me crazy. <laughs> no, no way. Yeah, that's one of the realizations I think a lot of us have come to in this last year is with space. Once you have space in your head to explore these things and to question I mean, to ask questions. They don't want you doing that. Liz, they don't want you thinking. Come on. So where does that leave us as freelancers? As a freelancer? Okay. I don't really subscribe to like political labels because I think that is unnecessarily reductive. George Washington himself hated the idea of a two-party system developing in this country, ironically. <laughs> However, I think that the more conservative nature within me thinks that personal responsibility is like really huge here if you're going to be a freelancer and an entrepreneur. And the only real way to develop that safety net is to build a robust brand mm, and, yeah. and taking the time to really build your brand because that's what you'll always be able to rely on at the end of the day, I think. Absolutely. So. Just to bring it down to a really practical level, mm -hmm. what does a musician have to do to build a brand? Like, how did you go about it? What do you advise these kids that are coming out? Or maybe just someone who's like our age who doesn't feel like they have a brand. Where do you start? Yeah, I was just going to say before you answer, Drew, like for someone whose identity, at least up through the pandemic, was I play in orchestras and I play this instrument and that's my brand, but it's the same brand as everybody else's. I think Steph and I are 100% in agreement with you that we all have the opportunity to do that for ourselves. But yeah, practically, what would you say to somebody who's spent their life kind of not thinking about their own identity? <laughs> okay, first stop. Think about your identity. It's okay. <laughs> take a breath. <laughs> yeah, take a breath and like you're, realize you're a whole person, right? And there's nobody like you. Yes. There's nobody like you. Mm hmm. Hmm. What is special about you that has nothing to do with your instrument? Because here's the deal. Your brand could be like, I'm human. Everyone's like, there's 7 billion of us, bro. Like, what the, like, <laughs> what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Specificity. A book that I read that's really cool is called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. And there's another book that I'm a few pages in by the same authors, 22 Immutable Laws of Branding. And they both kind of overlap in a lot of ways. And one of the things that they focus on being the first to do something is really good at building a brand. I built my brand by being one of the first violists to put stuff on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And I just, I rode that and deepened that brand and really doubled down on that. Now, if you can't be the first to do something, be the first to do something in a category. There's like this person named Monochrome Viola. Yeah. yeah. Yep. They're unique. They're the first yes. to do it like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, wear a bodysuit, black and white, and do that. They're a beautiful player, by the way. Mm -hmm. I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan. So the next person that tries to do black and white bodysuit is not even going to get close to where she is because they are not doing something new. So it's kind of like in nature, all the animals fulfill a specific niche and they all work together and it builds an ecosystem right yeah. working in tandem and synergy so we as violists are easy we're good at that we're good at being the glue so how do you be the glue in a way that benefits another person the way to build your brand is to figure that out and then solve that tiny little problem for as many people in that tiny niche as possible and then expand because if you solve the problems for people, they may come back to you again, 
with a different problem. And if you can mm-hmm. solve that different problem, that allows you the opportunity to expand your brand a little bit. Case in point, people used to just come to me to like play viola. And now sometimes they come to me asking me to bring not only my viola, but other players. Can you bring a quartet? I can do that. I play quartets. Then they ask me, hey, can you contract an entire orchestra? I'm like, do I know enough people for that? (laughs) Right. If the answer is no, then you can't fulfill that niche yet. But if the answer is yes, then boom, you can add that to your brand. Or I had people ask me to record in my bedroom. I would do that. Then they asked me if I could write viola lines for their song. I can do that. I've done that for myself. And so now I'm not just a violist. I'm not just a recording artist. I'm not just a contractor, but I'm a producer. I produce my own music. I produce for other people. I produce for companies and brands now. So you can continue to grow and expand, but you got to start with that first problem and then continually solving it for your audience. Yeah, I love that. But I think also at the heart of that expansion is your willingness to learn. You're always learning something new. And that's just that's going to be very clear to our listeners with the amount of book references that you just gave. (laughs) I was watching one of the practice videos you made for the New York Phil, their practice challenge. Mm -hmm. And you referenced the 25-5. Oh, yeah, the Pomodoro. And I wonder if you, yes, you're a Jim Quick disciple. Yeah, yeah, I read that book over the pandemic. That is at the heart of being flexible, being a chameleon, being able to evolve is learning. Yeah. And taking in a lot of information. So have you always been just a voracious reader or did something spark that in you or? I'm just the biggest nerd I know, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) My girlfriend looks at me like, you are a nerd. All your YouTube videos are like Super Smash Bros and cryptocurrency. Like you just... You found your niche. I found my the niche. The old players who are into blockchain and, and you know, you got it. Beating people up and, and yeah, and gaming. Niche. <laughs> I had to give myself a condition. So if I had the audacity to want to like play for the rest of my life, to have fun as a living, discipline equals freedom. If I'm going to do this, I need to continually invest in this career that nobody's gonna hand me. And it's gonna take time, it's gonna take patience. So I switched existing habits with new ones. Mm -hmm. So instead of always watching TV, I would instead start listening to podcasts. At first they were funny podcasts just to kind of get into that vibe, but then I would start listening to podcasts about money, planet money, Freakonomics. Mm -hmm. Start listening to more science. I love them. Yes. I love them. Great podcasts. Yeah. And in those podcasts, they would reference books. And I was like, okay, that sounds like a book I should read. So I'll go read that book on the subway. Or if I'm walking and I can't read and walk, I'll listen to a podcast, right? Yeah. So it's I'm just trying to have a nice cycle. And one thing that I think is really important now that we live in the information age, it's a double-edged sword. It gives us more opportunity to obtain skills that can bring money into our lives, right? Mm-hmm. But also it gives us more opportunities to make bad decisions. So we have to make Mm -hmm. sure we make as many good decisions as possible. And so the information you take in should be taken as seriously as the food you take in into your body. Mm -hmm. Yes. This was another one of your 29. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I had it down because I was like, this is so good. You say, before watching anything on the internet, stop and ask yourself one question. Will this piece of content help me learn something new, serve as content marketing research, or help me grow in some way? And if the answer is no, you consider watching something else. I don't know how many times we all have just gotten sucked down a rabbit hole. And before you know it, two hours later, you have lost all of that time. I think it's that mindfulness piece. I know you reference meditation a lot. And that's if you're not present about what it is that you're consuming, I think it can get in the way. I'll be guilty of that. Uh, we all are. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and it's fun at first, but then like after, when you're done, just remember the feeling of when you're done with that binge. You're like, oh, it's like you ate a bunch ate of Doritos. Cheetos. You're like, oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, my, my fingers are orange <laughs> now. Like, <laughs> so true. Did I have to do that? <laughs> I yeah. love me some Doritos too, man. I'm sorry. Right. I mean, every once in a while, you gotta, you gotta binge. Yeah, <laughs> we're human, and so like, look, yeah. let's just off the hook. What are you here to do? You know? Yeah. So many musicians are afraid to talk about this stuff. I'm yeah. Like, Why, dude? Why? We often use the phrase "jump in the deep end," and from watching your content you jump right in the deep end there from the very beginning. Yeah, I jump in. Let's just go, dude. Go I don't on. know how to. <laughs> Yeah, and once, you, once you're once you used to it, it's hard not to do it, right? <laughs> it's hard to remember that people don't exist on that same level yeah. in your everyday, especially a lot of musicians. You know, they're just very go in, get the job done. And we're like, but let's talk about the freelance economy. And let's talk about... Blah, blah, blah. What does this like mean, man? What does it all mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what changed for me and helped me get out of that? It's like improv comedy. Amazing. Yes, and? Yes, and. Yes, and. And it was very hard, and it taught me not to take things too seriously, because <laughs> it's about having fun. Totally. I, I love that, because why else would you do it, you know? You wouldn't do it for the money. No. No. <laughs> you learned that. It's so true, and I think for musicians now, coming out of this, we've heard it referred to as a grand pause or, you know, a time period where we the creating was internal versus having all of these opportunities outside of yourself. You're basically the vehicle of someone else's creativity. Even to have the concept that you can create something of your own is a little bit foreign, especially for orchestral musicians. This year is already looking more normal for us than the last two. So... Yeah, how do we kind of evolve forward and not fall back into those things, you know? It's interesting. That is a fundamental problem in classical music training is it teaches you how to do it the way it's supposed to be done. When in actuality, like, the most fulfilling part of what we do is the creation, not the replication. And I've had this, like, desire to learn how to improvise for so long. But I've gotten really good to where people ask me to do it at the professional level to replicate. Mm. Somebody thinks of it and I just execute it better than they could if they needed to. That's why they pay me because I just do it efficiently. Mm -hmm. But that's not creative. Yeah. That's not creativity. You can find creativity in like the way you interpret it, but that's kind of like splitting hairs. And so I've been trying to learn how to improvise and it's been a journey of like, wow. I'm 12 years old again. Uh, yes. You know? Humbling. Yeah. Oh, it's so humbling. You're like, wow, a degree from Juilliard and you can't even think of anything to play in F sharp minor. What's wrong? <laughs> like, 
just pick a note. <laughs> it's so funny too because you like forget what notes are in the scale. You're like, I'm improving, yes. and then you play something. You're like, oh wait, that oh that that was blue. <laughs> that was blue. It's jazz, friends. It's jazz. <laughs> oh yeah, it's jazz. Okay, it's I was being jazz. bitonal. I was being <laughs> Stravinsky. Right? We're good. We're good. Right? Is that okay? <laughs> you know what just occurred to me the other day? It was kind of a mind blowing moment for me. I was in the car and I was listening. I wasn't listening to classical music. I was listening to something else. And I was thinking about a concert that I was going to go to of a cover band. And I was like, you know, that's what orchestras are. We're just cover bands. Yes. With a lot more rules. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A ton of rules that make it less fun for the people in the audience, right? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. If this articulation isn't exactly the way I want it to be with every single string player in the group, then it's not going to be successful because obviously your audience is going to notice if every single string player in they the don't group care is most of them are drunk anyway they've just come off a long day of work they just want to unwind <laughs> people just want to be moved you want to know something i noticed mm -hmm. tell me based off of your comment liz about having the audience notice like if something doesn't go perfectly they don't <laughs> i learned this from busking in the subways for years I could play the worst I've ever felt and I just feel like this big, just microscopic. And then somebody will come to me with tears in their eyes saying like, I needed this. So how the audience feels about what you do has nothing to do with you and everything to do with how receptive they are. Yes. Yeah. But what if we could all be just like, you know, cover bands, it's not going to be the same as the way that the original was done. They've got a different singer. They've got a different idea. They've got a different instrument. Mm -hmm instruments mm -hmm. no production and they don't feel as confined as we feel as musicians on a stage playing mozart or whatever they feel free to like do it the way that they hear it in that moment yep and what happens when a cover band kills it playing living on a prayer in a bar everybody loses their mind mm -hmm. when was the last time we covered beethoven everyone lost like really screaming and cheering grandpa woke up yeah. that's that's a win <laughs> When those trombones came in. Why does it always come back to Beethoven stuff? I don't know. But you brought it back there. I did. I'm sorry. We had a whole conversation bashing Beethoven last year. Really? We weren't bashing him. Not bashing. I mean, we love Beethoven, but we just kept referencing the fact that Beethoven is like... Overprogrammed. Overprogrammed. Yeah. Or had been. That's getting into representation of the canon. Yeah. Did you know that the Dvorak String Quartet the American was known as the N-word quartet when it first came out no. and it was what? used. Yes, it was called the N-word quartet as a marketing ploy to keep people from playing it because he referenced Negro spirituals in the programmatic nature of the music. Whoa. And it started in London. The publications were coining it that and it became known as that. So we didn't play it for a very long time. There's also like a really great Adam Neely video. There's a white supremacist legacy in music theory. That's really interesting because speaking cover bands, the one thing I used to always listen to growing up was like jazz and like funk and soul mm -hmm. and rock. Mm. Not really hip hop because my dad didn't like hip hop, but I like it now. <laughs> and I used to always listen to that music and then listen to Beethoven. And I will try to like play 
pop music on the keyboard with triads and it didn't make sense Mm -hmm. and for years i couldn't understand how would you talk about pop music harmonically using classical music theory over the past few years moving to la and learning more about jazz theory and pop theory and i'm like oh wait a minute this is not only a more modern approach to understanding harmony but it's better. Yes. And the reason it's not really talked about is because this sort of theory was postulated and theorized and codified by black people. Yeah, yes. That's why they don't teach it in these conservatories, even though it's a better system. And Adam Neely talks about it in the video. He interviews an ethnomusicologist from Hunter College. I highly recommend it. It'll change the way you think about it. And it just makes me think about all these kids who are leaving classical music conservatories who are possibly going to be hired to play other genres. They're going to see a triangle on a lead sheet and they're going to be like, what do I do with this? Yes. Yes. I went to Temple in Philly. Word. Yes. Love it. Couldn't imagine going anywhere else. It was amazing. And my senior year, I took jazz styles and analysis and it was so, so much more expansive than our traditional classical theory. And... That's the difference, right? The classical theory is limiting. It funnels you in instead of being out there. And yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I think there's like a before college, an in college, and an after college. Mm -hmm. And like you're a different person in each of those stages. And I think my real realization of God, it's starting. This real life thing was like when I turned 25 and I was on tour with Sphinx Virtuosi, I had a mini quarter life crisis. I was like... So I just got everything else ahead of me at any time, forever, <laughs> until it's over. What, like, what am I working for? It's a lot of that self-discovery. So it's really hard to find the next thing to work for, but it's worth it. And, and if anybody out there listening to this is like kind of struggling with that, especially with the pandemic, just know that on the other side, you just have to deploy a little bit of patience, take it one step at a time. Because anything worthwhile, you're going to have to fight for it. And it's going to take time to achieve. But it's it's always worth it. Yeah. I love that. That's so great. Again, I because I read it and read it again, I just loved your perspectives. You mentioned this first. You're never going to make it. Like, you're never going to, quote, make it. You're yeah. on a journey forever. And we're going to go through evolutions if we are committed to growth. And so being open to those possibilities. And I think you are such a great ambassador for living that kind of life from the very start, from before maybe you even realized what you were doing. That was a movement you no started, idea. basically, right? I guess so. <laughs> play, homie, play. You know? <laughs> Get on out there. Get on out there. I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. But... Join the club, man. Yeah. We're further down the track than you, and I have no idea what the next 10 years is going to look like. Oh, it's, it's going to be amazing. It's exciting to know that it could go in different directions and you can do different things. I don't know if I felt that way before our pandemic time. Mm-hmm. I think I thought I was on a track that was just going to keep going in the same direction. And now it's, I don't know, there's other possibilities. There's little detours or... <laughs> The road's a little more winding. Yeah, the scenic route? Yeah. Speaking of detours, my crypto startup that I'm working with is called Coda Labs, and we're trying to use blockchain technology to address real problems in the music industry yep. mm. in a way that will improve consumer outcomes and also increase revenue for artists. You've been posting some things here and there. You wrote the blog about it, and yeah. you've been out there talking about this. 
And it's something that I think is totally over most of our heads, especially in the world of music. You know, it just came up the other day. Steph and I have a really good friend who's a violinist who has moved to El Salvador. His wife is El Salvadorian. Oh, yeah. Do you know about this? Oh, (laughs) yes, I do. Yeah. His wife works for the Ministry of Economy in El Salvador. So she's been like, yes, she's been like in the forefront of this. I want to meet her. Many months ago, they like drafted a resolution and signed it into law, but now they've actually implemented Bitcoin as legal tender for all residents. Oh. They became the first country to legally, not just you can transact in Bitcoin, but you can pay your taxes in Bitcoin. And all vendors, all people who render services or goods must accept Bitcoin as tender, which is the first of any country mm. on the planet. A decade ago, people talking about Bitcoin and you're like, all right, crazy person, this is virtual money, like it's not a thing. They have so much money now oh, yeah. from doing that. It's wild. That's why I say just change your idea of money because like, what is the value of it? Somebody, Satoshi Nakamoto, out of nowhere, created that value. And now they're likely to be a trillionaire in the next two or three decades, right? They made it up. Hmm. There's created they it. They created it. You're right. <laughs> You're right. right. So yes. you you too out there are capable of creating value. Just solve a problem for people. The world is plenty of them. If there are problems in the world, there's money to be made. Mm. Yes. I think it's great that you mentioned this project you're doing. And I'm excited to see how you expand on that to make it more accessible to the greater musician community. I think that anyone 30 and under is going to immediately have a better grasp over what is happening right now with this. The rest of us are kind of like, and how does this apply to our careers as musicians and all of that? I I wrote a blog post called Blockchain Explained from a Musician's Perspective. If you're interested in learning a little bit about the bare bones base layer of what blockchain technology is, I believe it's like this century's version of discovering fire electricity and oil Mm. the use cases for blockchain are nuts and i think that is going to really make this world a lot better in so many different ways so that's great yeah and what is the startup that you're working with it's called coda labs we're still working on incorporation we're still working on getting funding and things like that but sure it was born essentially january this year between a friend of mine it started off on a podcast and they were like wait we could do something so that's exciting you're doing it you heard it here first folks yes (laughs) (laughs) that's one of our favorites (laughs) love that well it has been a sheer joy absolutely to hang out with you thanks for having me i hope we can do this again yes totally love that oh we would really love that this has been so great thank you for giving us your time of course if you ever have any questions about crypto or any like blockchain related stuff dm me it's okay i love talking about it i love sharing the idea and it's not as scary as you think it just takes a little bit of vocab yeah (laughs) thank you for that (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for listening to the viola centric podcast If you enjoy what you're hearing and would like to support us, please consider a contribution through the PayPal or Venmo links in our episode notes. Once again, I'm Liz O'Hara Starr. And I'm Stephanie Knudsen. We release new episodes every other Monday, so please subscribe so you don't miss one. In the meantime, connect with us on Facebook and on Instagram and email us at violacentric at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.